All right, tonight is October 20th. It is a Wednesday night, and this is our second teaching in John. Our first teaching covered John 1 through 18 and was called Revealing the Father. And our second teaching in John starts in the 19th verse, and we will see where it ends, but it is called the Messianic Expectation. So... We're going to begin this series in John, and I've wanted to refresh your memory on a couple things that ought to be engraved in stone at this point. In the first 18 verses of John, one of the major things that you picked up, of course from the title of last week's message, is that Jesus' purpose was to make the Father known. Do everybody agree with that? you understand? Nobody could understand God, so God poured Himself into someone who was His representative. Uh, to the point where he was declared to be God, to make God knowable, understandable, and seeable to you. And that the whole book of John's mission statement was in Cassidy, John 20, 31. John wrote this book for the purpose of you believing, and that in you believing, you might find life, life everlasting. The goal of Christianity has never been to go to heaven. John never makes the case that it's to go to heaven. He writes the book for one purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing that, you might find life. Now, when I say life, I'm speaking about the incorruptible power of life by which Melchizedek was a a high priest in the heavenly order, by which Jesus is a high priest according to the book of Hebrews and by which we will resurrect in bodies that will never die in an eternal state that people think of as heaven. Now we are going to pick up in John 19. Just a couple other little points. One. Is one nineteen? Yeah, sorry about that. Remember that John was probably the youngest of the apostles. He died, uh, the only one to die a natural death under Trajan, who hated the Jews because Trajan had participated in the suppression of the Jewish rebellion. In fact, he was in the head of the 10th Legion. Either 10th or 9th. I can't ever seem to remember that. And uh, y'all in John one nineteen now? Okay, we have just completed the 18th verse which says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. I described the chapel to y'all with the mirrors on the floor so that you, when you looked up and you saw the ceiling, it was overwhelming and you couldn't take it in. So the owner of the chapel put the mirrors on the floor so you could sit in one place and study it and it was absorbable to you. And that is the way that Jesus is making the Father known. He's the perfect reflection of the Father. When you look at Him, you're seeing everything that the Father is. Moving on from there, John picks up a theme that he had begun earlier in the chapter. And he's returning to something that had to happen before the Messiah was introduced to the people of Israel. And this starts the 19th verse. It says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but freely confessed, or confessed freely, I am not the Christ. That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? There's no record in John. There is no record in John yet of anybody asking him if he was the Christ. So why would he confess freely as if he were being questioned about being the Christ? Why would anybody think that he was the Christ? Did he make a claim to be Christ? Not, not as recorded in the book of John. 
Let me start with this first verse and then we'll introduce these concepts. It says, the Levites and the priests came to question him, right? How can you be a priest uh, and not be a Levite? You can be a Levite and not be a priest, but you can't be a priest and not be a Levite. In all likelihood, these are representatives of the, or a commission that was sent out from the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin had representatives from all of the tribes, comprised 70 or 72 members, depending on who you talk to, and they sent some of the priests and Levites out to question John. And John immediately confesses, I'm not the Christ. Why would that be? They were looking for, who was looking for? They were looking for the Christ. Turn with me to Luke 3. It's all right if y'all talk back tonight. In fact, I'd appreciate it. I had like three hours sleep and I need you to stay with me tonight. Besides that, this is worth learning. In Luke 3, he sheds a little light on this and it says uh, in the 15th verse, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. And then John goes on to answer them that he's not, of course. Why would the people be wondering and expecting him to be the Christ? What about John would, would make you think he was the Messiah? Now, these are rhetorical questions for a reason. Because he was baptizing? What's significant about baptizing? I mean, why, why on earth? I mean, lots of people baptize or do that. There were all kind of ceremonial washings in Israel, which are baptisms. There were all kinds of... For instance, you washed certain ways before you made sacrifices. But what John was doing was different. And here's what's different about it. You know, there's a worldwide church today. Actually, it's not a church, but they claim to be a church. They have a seat in the United Nations. Their leader wears a funny hat and is a paunchy old man. We all know who I'm talking about, right? What happens... When you're born into that and then you are baptized, what happens? No, no. You're baptized as an adult. What happens? Maybe not to that extent, but it's frowned upon. Why? Why, why does this worldwide church frown upon you being baptized as an adult? It is saying that you were lacking in something before. You know what was upsetting to, to the people? The reason the Sanhedrin came out and said, Hey, are you the Christ? You know, tell us plainly. And he says, No, man, I'm not the Christ. He came with a, uh, a mission and a purpose in mind. And in doing so, he was baptizing people. Do you know what John's baptism was? What does Paul tell us? Yeah, in Acts 19, it says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. There's a problem with that. These are Jews. These are sons of Abraham. They were already clean. They were already sons of God. And to be baptized would imply that they weren't. This is why John reacts to them in the way that he does. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? The axe is at the root, buddy. It's going to be cut down. Because the idea was, we're Abraham's children. We don't need to be baptized. There was only one figure. Actually, there were three. But there was only one status of figure that they expected to have the authority to tell people they needed to be baptized. That would be the Messiah. Because if they were Abraham's descendants, they had no need of anything else. 
So when they see that he's baptizing, when they see people going out to him, now you're going to hear other people contradict what I'm saying. They're going to say, oh, the Jews, baptism was nothing new. It was nothing new for a Jew to proselytize by baptizing. David's a Gentile. He wants to become a Jew. Then I have to baptize him. It was nothing new for a Jew to have ceremonial washings, but not for the purpose of repentance. Not for the purpose of changing your state. For the purpose of washing your hands. Not changing your state. Now, you know what? If David was a Gentile, and he needed to be proselytized, and so I baptized him, and at different times in history he became a Jew then, at other times it was his children, but you know what always happened? Once he was considered a Jew, his children didn't have to be baptized. You know why? They were Jews. Now, does this sound familiar to you at all? Same spirit's always been in the world. Okay? So this was a new thing. And they came and said, Hey, are you the Christ? And he says, No, man, I'm not the Christ. But the people were wondering if he might be. Let's keep going with that and I'll explain more. Verse uh, 21. They asked him then, Who are you? Are you the Elijah? Now, I'm obviously going to get way off on this Elijah thing, so before I do, the first question, who were they looking for? The very first one, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Christ means anointed one. Why on earth would the Jewish people be looking for an anointed one? It had been promised. Listen to some of these, and you all know these. I've taught on them a million times. Genesis 3.15. It promises that there would be a specific seed the seed of the woman would crush the head of the enemy. It promises that. Her offspring, her seed would. They knew that. And every woman had been birthing children hoping that hers was the seed. In Genesis 22, you saw Abraham looks up in the distance and sees a place. In John, Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day. This is John 8, like 56. He says, uh, Abraham longed to see my day, and he rejoiced at it. Genesis 22 teaches us that Abraham looked up in the distance and saw the place. Later in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, it says that when he arrived at that place that he had seen, that God had told him about, he named it something. On this mountain, the Lord will provide. Right? They were waiting for the one that he knew would be the provision. The sacrifice. They're waiting for the one that come conquer death. They were waiting for what Abraham named the place on this mountain the Lord will provide. What else were they waiting for? Incidentally, Genesis 22:18 doesn't just say, let me read that to you real quick. I know you know these, so I'll read it quickly. Genesis 22, the whole shadow and type of Isaac being like Jesus. Listen to the way this is said, because Paul makes big issue out of this in the book of Galatians. He says in 22.18, uh, I'm sorry, start in verse 17, to Ephraim's field, sorry, that's 23, 22.18, uh, 17, 22.17 says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring... Do you have a footnote there? Through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. On the mountain that Abraham saw and that Jesus referred to in John 8, where he said Abraham saw my day, in that place Abraham says, Hey, here the Lord will provide. 
in that very spot, God speaks to him and says, all nations on earth are going to be blessed, not just through your descendants, which is how it's translated. Your footnote says, through your seed. Paul takes that word seed and says, he, wasn't, he didn't say seeds. He said seed, speaking of one that they were waiting for. Balaam even spoke of a star rising out of Israel. You remember that? It's in Numbers 24. Genesis 49 spoke to the sons of Judah and said in 49.10, The scepter will not depart from your feet until the ruler to whom it belongs comes and the obedience of the nations will be his. All of these spoke of a single individual. Now, there are many, many messianic references that are vague that speak of a town where the Messiah would be born, a time the Messiah would be born, or a tribe or people group that he would be born to, but these are different. These spoke of a single individual who simply became known as the Anointed One, the Star, the ruler whose staff wouldn't depart, the Seed, the Conqueror of the Enemy, all of those things. So they were waiting and they referred to him as the Christ. This gets very important because when you're reading in John, later you get to places where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, Guys, I'm not going to condemn you on that day. Moses is. You know why? You've set your hopes on Moses. He wrote about me and yet you refuse to come to me and find life. A friend of mine, actually a relative of mine, took out a Bible concordance I gave him and he looked. The word Jesus never appeared in the Old Testament. So he thought, this must be wrong. How could this be true? It's not wrong. You just have to understand what the expectations of Israel were. They weren't waiting for a man named Jesus. You have the benefit of a rearview mirror when you look at Bible prophecy. They didn't. They were waiting for the anointed one. They were not necessarily waiting for a carpenter who was 33 years old and, you know, had Mary for a mother. They were waiting for the anointed one and who was supposed to do other things. Psalm 2 speaks of the obedience of the nations being His. All, all kinds of Scriptures do. So we don't need to read those. But they're all speaking of a single individual. We learn in the New Testament that even as Israel was a single individual, but comprised a whole nation, and so it could be a collective term, the Christ, who is a single individual, also that term refers to His whole body. Make sense? Okay. So they were waiting for the Christ, and when He confesses freely, I'm not the Christ. Verse 21 says, They asked him then, Who are you? Are you Elijah? He said to them, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some of the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And we're going to pick back up with this, but they were looking for three specific things. And because he was baptizing, they were confused and thought he must be one of those three things. Since he was baptizing and telling Jews that something is wrong with you, 
You need to bring a change in your state to get ready to meet with God. Your national heritage is not enough. The fact that you were born in the natural lineage of Abraham is not enough. They took real offense at this. In fact, the leadership began to think, wow, he's misleading the masses. Now, isn't that interesting? Did we not see something very similar to that in our own Reformation? When people began to reject the religion that they were birthed into, that because they were born to a certain family and christened to a certain family, that they were good to go? Well, when people began to be raised up and say, you know what? That's not good enough. There needs to be a change in your state. You must be born again. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works that any man should boast. What happened? The leadership went out to meet with them. <laughs> and they burned all of them that they could catch. And when that didn't work, they tried to burn the book that taught that. See, mankind's not really changed a lot. God's progressive revelation is going forth. And the whole time the progressive revelation is going forth, there is a power that opposes it. But what we can glean from John, that I want you to glean, is that the hope of the nation centered around three people. They were waiting for three things. And sometimes, these three things, it's unclear whether they thought they would be the same person or three different people. You know, there are times in David's life, he acted just like a king. Was he a king? Yeah. There are times he acted just like a priest. You remember at Nob? Was he a priest? He wasn't of the priestly tribe, was he? But he did act like a priest. He wore their garments and God honored it, didn't he? There are times David acted like a prophet. Was he a prophet to the nation of Israel? Not really, but he sure prophesied. And most of them are recorded in our books of Psalm, right? It's sometimes hard to say, was David a prophet? Was he a priest or was he a king? Or is he all three? The Messiah is an awful lot like that. They had three general expectations... And they weren't real sure how all these pieces fit together, so they're asking, John, you don't seem to be a normal guy, and you're doing things that upset us, so we need to know basically what they're asking. By what authority are you doing this? And they said, are you Elijah? And what did he say? They said, uh, they asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. There's some problems with that though, aren't there? Who did he say he was? Let's start there. What, who, did, who did John claim that John was? The vo and where is that found? That's Isaiah 40. Somebody get there. This is actually a quote from multiple places, but the most complete is in Isaiah 40. You there? Okay, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 3. You can read it. Read it out loud. Okay, and now the people on CD won't get to hear that, so I'm going to repeat some of it, but get this. Why would they be offended that he was baptizing? Remember? Because they would indicate that there needed to be a change in the state of the regular Jews. So they said, are you Elijah? He said, no. They said, well, who are you then? He said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make way, make level paths for the Lord. 
He said, every high place needs to be brought low and every low place needs to be brought high. He said, well, that's a strange answer. What they're getting at when they ask him, are you Elijah? Is, By what authority are you doing this? How, who are you to tell us to change our ways? His answer to them is, Isaiah said somebody was going to cry out, you needed to change your ways, and I'm him. Now, incidentally, that was the mission of the forerunner of the Christ, who is Elijah. It gets really, really interesting. I'll show you. I mean, that's, that's where we're going next. Yes, that's right. I'm glad you asked that question. And if you will turn with me to Malachi 3. Are you Elijah? I am not. Well, who are you? Why are you doing this? Why are you baptizing? Why are you teaching these people that their heritage is not enough? Well, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Malachi 3, verse 1. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. You can find Matthew and hang a left. Malachi 3 says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So, well, that's still not Elijah. It is the same guy that we're talking about in Isaiah though, isn't it? Somebody who's preparing the way of the Lord. Flip over a few more pages. Find me Malachi 4. What's significant about the book of Malachi? Those of you that have been with me for a while, what is Malachi? The last of the recorded minor prophets. This is right before 400 years of silence. And in the last of the recorded prophets, in the last chapter, in the last few sentences, what were they told to look for? Well, that's Malachi 4, verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. What's the next sentence? There isn't one. So if you were a Jew and you were clinging to your Scripture, our Scripture, the same Scripture we all are, what would be the last words ringing in your ears? Elijah's coming and if we don't listen in, there's going to be a curse. This would explain why ever since they uh, heard these words, when they were doing the Passover, they went out and looked for Elijah. Elijah was considered by the Jews to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. I mean, this guy, he could call down fire, he could change armies, he could see into the heavenlies. He was awesome, right? Never mind that Elisha did twice the number of miracles. You know? he, Elijah was revered. He had a special calling from God. So they're looking for the anointed one and they're also looking for Elijah. Now, we see it very clearly. One comes before the other. But what else is always prophesied about? What does Daniel teach happens in the day of the Lord? What do indeed all of the Old Testament prophets teach happens in the day of the Lord? They call it a great and dreadful day. Great why? Salvation, what kind of salvation? What did the Jews call that salvation? Inherit the land? But what do you have to do to inherit the land forever? You have to resurrect. They knew that there would be a resurrection of the righteous 
and the unrighteous. This is why Paul was on trial for the same hope as all of Israel. So, they thought in the Messianic days, in the Messiah days, people would resurrect. You know what? Same hope we have. When the Messiah returns, we see the resurrection. But how surprised would you have been to be them and see the Messiah without seeing a resurrection? That's why he had to resurrect first to prove that he was that God. So get this. Who comes first? We know now that he's a forerunner and that's easy for us to see because we're looking at the book of Malachi. They were waiting for a general resurrection at his coming. And here's how convoluted it gets. They say, hey, are you the Christ? No. Well, the only other guy we know is supposed to come is the Elijah. Are you Elijah? No. What else did they ask? Are you the prophet? Now, I have taught for years what I believe that is. And I believe it's Deuteronomy 18. I forgot. We have to look like 18, 19, say 18, 17. Because Moses said, I will raise up a prophet like me. God will raise up a prophet like Moses. And that is what that speaks of and that's why it's capitalized. But we will see in other places in the Scripture, you remember? Who do men say that I am? What was the answer? Some say the prophet. Some say Elijah. And some say... Uh-uh. Jeremiah or one of the other prophets because one of the mainstream teachings in the day there was confusion about the coming of the Messiah they knew it had a resurrection they knew Elijah was there but then there was this talk about a prophet the largest of all the Old Testament prophetic books was Jeremiah and Jeremiah had accurately foretold not only the Babylonian captivity but coming out of the captivity and also a day when there would be a new covenant and Israel's sin would be taken away. So they thought perhaps Jeremiah would be raised and would be returned to them. And then they took it a step further. must be that all the prophets are going to be raised because they saw a resurrection. Is this illogical? Is it untrue? It's not untrue about the day of the Lord. But, see, we're looking in the rearview mirror. We see it clearly in two places. We see a first and second coming. They didn't. They didn't have that benefit. Now, when you're trying to put yourself in their shoes and you're thinking about the messianic expectation, what should we be looking for? And we look back and we see that from the issuing of the decree until the time He presents Himself is 483 some odd years from the issuing of the decree and then we back up from the date He came and one says it's Artaxerxes, Longimanus, and others, you know, all of these things. We're looking backwards. They were looking forwards. You know what it's like? It's just like people today. Some say, oh, well, I think he'll come before the trib. And they point to a scripture. And others say, no, I think he'll come in the middle of the trib. And then everybody who's right says, no, he'll come after the trib. I'm just kidding. I kind of gave my position away, didn't I? Uh, we're just as confused about his second coming as they were his first. Is all of it based on some fact? Sure. But it's not all right. So they're trying to place these guys. They said, dude, you, you got a belt like Elijah. Got, you know, the garb like Elijah. You act like a prophet. We haven't seen anybody do the kind of things you're doing. Not that it was miracles. He just was set apart from birth. He came and... What kind of message did John the Baptist preach? Repentance. I mean, he was fiery. He blasted them. You brood of vipers. What kind of message did Elijah preach? Who remembers one of Elijah's famous sermons? I preach on it all the time. It's in Kings 18. He's on Mount Carmel, and what does he say? 
Choose this day whom you will serve. If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. How long will you be divided? And then he, he, he got God to answer him by fire. We're talking about a guy that when the nation wasn't going well, he shut off the rain. Well, this makes some sense then. Are you Elijah? You act like him. You look like him. But what did he say? No, I'm not Elijah. Here's my take on that. John was not willing to be identified with what their concept of Elijah was because it wasn't right. The thing that they thought Elijah would do, John was not there to do. What was John there to do? That's how he answered. Are you Elijah? I'm the voice of the one crying, make straight the way of the Lord, which is what Elijah came to do. He's not telling them that he didn't come in the spirit of Elijah. He's not telling them that he didn't perform that function. He's not saying any of those things. He simply corrected them. Are you Elijah? They meant something when they said, Are you Elijah? And it was not just, you know, Are you the Elijah we're to look for? It's not what they said. They said, Are you Elijah? He said, No. Well, what are you? And then he answered with what Elijah was supposed to do. I know that's not incredibly clear yet. So, uh, look at Luke 1. Yeah. And, and how do you answer that? Let's, let's suppose for a moment that you, like I, don't believe in the traditional rapture where people are sucked away in the middle of the night, leave neatly folded piles of clothes and cars and planes crash. And, and it said, let's just suppose that you don't believe that. Somebody says, do you believe in rapture? Your first inclination is no. But it really wholly depends on what they mean by that word, doesn't it? Because if what they mean is, do you believe in a catching up with the Lord in the air? Well, absolutely. Thessalonians says it. But the implications they're trying to draw by that word you don't agree with. Do you believe... Hey, here's one that charismatics say. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? I don't know a Christian anywhere that doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. But if what you're asking me is, do I believe in the manifestation of the gifts in the church? Well, that's different than believing in the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You know, sometimes our terminology separates us. He was not willing to be put into their box. Okay, y'all in Luke 1? And I'll try to make that a little clearer to you. Not just that, but whatever their conception of Elijah was, they're asking him, are you that? Now, here, here's where this gets interesting. And I'll tell you, our knowledge is a little incomplete here, and I'm going to shed some light on this, okay? Uh, it's why I had you all with the appetizer before the sermon. Uh, when I talked to you about those things, I wanted you to think about it during worship. In Luke 1, 16, uh, it says, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Right? Who's that speaking of? Is it a quote? Huh? Yeah. Y'all speak up. I can't hear you. It's talking about John, but it's a quote from Malachi. So is John Elijah? Let's see. <laughs> Matthew 11. Turn to Matthew 11. This is, I mean, somebody told me this year that the Bible supported reincarnation. And I said, why is that? They said, because Jesus said John was Elijah. So he had to be reincarnated. I said, no, it says, it says that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. They said, no, it says he's Elijah. 
You know what? It really kind of depends on which place you read and what translation you're reading. I still don't concede that it says he was Elijah. It says he was the Elijah to come. But how is that really different? Okay, let's, let's, let's look at it. You know in Matthew 11? It says, Jesus says, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What on earth does that mean? Matthew 17, verse 10. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Teachers of the law were saying Elijah must come first. Is that right? Yeah, that was right. Jesus replied, To be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. I bet you may have never thought about this before, but he just said to be sure Elijah does come and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. You know, the Messiah is not the only one who comes twice. What is the big problem with their messianic expectation? What's, what's the big problem with it? They were waiting for a Messiah that was a conquering king, right? Haven't you heard that all your life? And what did they get? They got a lamb. They were waiting for an Elijah who was making ready the preparation to restore all things. And they didn't get him either. They simply got the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make a level path for the Lord. But I tell you that my reading of this scripture lets me know that just as Jesus is returning a second time, Elijah will come first to prepare the re renewal of all things. Now, if you don't accept that, that's okay. That's just how I read this. I say, well, what do you mean he's going to come? Jesus said he had already come and he will come to restore all things. Am I reading that wrong? Does anybody take serious issue with that? Jesus replied, to, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Did Jesus suffer at their hands? Who else suffered at their hands? Okay, now this, I may be making too much of this. But as I see it, the Messiah they were waiting for was not the Messiah who came. A gentle lamb came instead of a conquering king. The Elijah they were waiting for, who initiated the restoration of all things, because that's what Malachi talked about, is not the Elijah they got. Somebody came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, preaching the same message as Elijah, but he was not physically, literally, Elijah. He was... He was a kind of Elijah, but he was not... If Elijah's mama looked at him, he wouldn't have, she wouldn't have seen Elijah. How else do you know that? Because Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration and they didn't say, wow, look, there's John the Baptist. They said, there's Elijah. Okay, so this is not reincarnation. Somebody came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the way for Jesus to, to preach, make level grounds. You know what? I personally 
have come to believe that before his second uh, return, a more powerful representation of Elijah, somebody who calls down fire from the heavens, that the world rejoices when they're struck dead and exchange gifts with one another, will be there. Because the renewal of all things will occur then. Now, does that not sound like one of the two witnesses? Does that not sound like an event that precedes the day of the Lord? And the day of the Lord that is coming is when the renewal of all things occurs? You know what the Jews in Israel call your resurrection? By the way, they don't have a concept of heaven unless they don't know what they're talking about at all and have been raised secularly. Do you know what they call your resurrection? The final renewal. That's what they call it. To them, the earth's going to be renewed and you are going to be renewed. And it is a final renewal, meaning it will never have to be done again. That's what they call it. Okay, so when somebody asks you, well, was John the Baptist Elijah? He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Well, what? Should we be looking for Elijah again? Are the Jews wrong when they do Passover now and they go look for Elijah? I don't think so. Are they wrong when they're waiting for a Messiah to come? No. There may be an argument over how many times he's, whether it is his first trip or second. I think that the Jewish nation will begin to experience even more of a revival when they see Elijah. When they see somebody coming in the power of Elijah. And the first time, John the Baptist did no miracles. The second time, this guy who comes in the power of Elijah, or however that works, he's going to do lots of miracles. The Bible teaches that. They'll be given power. Shut up heavens. Call down fire. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know why God chooses to reveal things in this way, but many times in the Bible, when you're looking at something, it's unclear about whether it's speaking about the present day or a day to come, and it is hard to say, wow, was that fulfilled in this day, or is that yet to be fulfilled? And the way that we get around all that is we say, oh, well, it's double reference. I don't have any new tricks for you tonight. It looks to me like it's double reference. I know they asked John if he was Elijah and he was uncomfortable with their view of what Elijah was and that wasn't what he was there for. So he answered in the words of Isaiah, I'm here to make level paths for the Lord. But then when the disciples asked Jesus, you know, why does everybody say Elijah has to come? He says, oh, he's going to come and he's already come. That's basically what he told. Does that make sense to you all? Anybody want to throw books at me because I'm a heretic? Okay, there are times we teach things that are controversial and I know that. What was next? Are you the prophet? Now remember, when they say this, I've taught forever that this is a singular person. But there was debate in Israel. Is this a singular person or not? How do, how do we know that there was debate? One way that we know there was debate is that... I hope I wrote it down. Let's see. I may not have written it down. I should number my pages, huh? Oh, well. With this prophet, oh, Matthew sixteen fourteen says this. They replied, when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Matthew sixteen fourteen says they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. They knew in the Messianic age there'd be a resurrection and so when they're trying to place these people, they want to place them as a prophet. Isn't it interesting that they were willing to accept John the Baptist as the Christ, but not the Christ? Do you know what else is confusing? 
at first glance? Did Jesus baptize? <laughs> so, the guy who came to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, looked like he was doing something only the Christ had the authority to do. said, no, I'm not the Christ. And then the guy who is the Christ didn't do that. Why? What did John say about it? I baptize you with water. And that seems to really get under your skin. There's somebody who's coming who will baptize you with fire. <laughs> and I'm not worthy to handle his sandals. See, we read that and we go, what on earth? You know, I mean, it just sounds like poetic language. You know what he was doing? He was digging them even deeper. You know, they're upset he's baptizing with water because it implies they're incomplete and need to change. And he says, hey, there's somebody out there among you guys whose sandals I'm not worthy to tie. And you know what? I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, in church today, we go, oh, I want the baptism of fire. I don't. I don't want it, not a bit. I hope to avoid it with all of my life. Because he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I don't see those two things occurring simultaneously. I see you as getting one or the other. He uses both and connects those two things equally. But the same Scripture teaches us that there's a winnowing fork in His hand. And that the wheat gets gathered in the barn and the chaff gets burned up with unquenchable fire. So when you get baptized in fire, it's because you did not get baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now that's not what I came to teach tonight. But listen to this from their perspective. I'm teaching on the book of John and the Messianic expectation. We're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the Anointed One. Wow, could this be Him? Let's go see. He's baptizing. Everybody's going to Him. We know in their minds, they're saying only the Messiah would, would bring about this kind of change because we're Jews. We have no need of, of repentance. We're children of Abraham. And they get out there and they ask, Wow, are you the Christ? No. Well, then, you've got to be the forerunner of the Christ. You're Elijah. No. Well, then, you're, you're one of the prophets, or are you the prophet, the one Moses spoke about? No. Well, who are you? I'm telling you to get ready for the Lord. I'm telling you to make your way straight. And by the way, <laughs> they, they, they busted in and said, Well, why are you baptizing then? If you're, if you're none of those people, why are you baptizing? He goes, <laughs> I'm baptizing with water. Somebody's going to come baptize you with either the Holy Spirit or with fire. And I understand I just put that in King Eric English. But that's, that's my understanding of what he's teaching. You know, that must have really got under their skin. You know, I'm sure they didn't jump up and down and say, oh, oh, for joy, for joy. You know? They're waiting for something and what's being presented to them doesn't match any of it. It matches the Scripture perfectly, but it does not match their expectation. Does that make them stupid? No. In fact, let me, let me read you something. Starting back in John 19. It says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites. Let me remind you of something that... I'm scared that when people read the book of John, something will happen. One of the things that I'm scared of is because you see there the Jews of Jerusalem. Many times John simply says, The Jews. And so you could have a tendency to think the entire nation felt a certain way. But he didn't say the Jews. He said the Jews of Jerusalem, Levites and priests. Okay, Jews is a broad group. Then the Jews in Jerusalem is a smaller group. Then Levites is a smaller group. Then within that, priests is an even smaller group. John uses the word Jews to speak of Jewish leadership always. Do you understand what I'm saying? So from here on out, when it says the Jews tried to kill him, 
Are the Jews to this? You need to remember. It, that's a term that is speaking in John's mind of Jewish leadership. I don't think he ever intended to indict the whole nation so that under a, a popish Roman leader, people would persecute Jews for being Christ killers. The nation of Israel were not Christ killers. Not the whole nation. That room where, where that trial took place would not have fit the whole nation. Surely we can agree upon that. In fact, many people were being baptized by John the Baptist. What does that tell you? That is soft heart. They're willing to change. Many people embraced Jesus. But without the infilling of the Holy Spirit, they didn't have the ability to hold on to His teaching. But soon as the Holy Spirit was poured out, what happened? 3,000 in a single day saved. All of them Jews. So let's get out of our head that the Jews are bad people or that they're stubborn or stupid or any of those things. We'd greatly err. We'd, everything we have, we owe to the Jews. Now, moving on from there. It says, uh, He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. They asked Him then, Who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now some of the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The other Gospels record that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. But what I want you to get tonight in our closing moments, and then we're going to cover the prophet just a little bit, is first of all, they were looking for a Christ, a single anointed person. Some of them thought of him as a uh, king, a conquering king. Others saw him in many different ways. I mean, the one thing that most people did not foresee is deity. Uh, just be honest. Because they saw him as a son of David. They saw him as a son of Eve. They saw him as all of these things and they did not understand at all the extent to which the Messiah would come as a representation of God. Now, I'm not saying nobody understood that. I mean, you see, guys like Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Guys like Paul embracing and said, Jesus, who is God over all in Romans. I mean, you do see people embrace him with that, but that was not the mainstream thought. Secondly, they were looking for Elijah. They were looking for a guy that in Jesus' own words would bring about a renewal of all things because it's what Malachi had promised. He's going to come right before the renewal. So when you see him, the renewal of all things will occur. What did they ask? What did the disciples ask Jesus uh, in the opening chapters of Acts? At that time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Even the apostles were unsure when this was going to occur until more revelation had been given them. But all Jews were waiting for an anointed one and they had many thoughts about him. Conquer death, uh, reign on David's throne forever, uh, be from the tribe of Judah, all of those things. But their conception about how that would occur, who he would be, they didn't have all of those details any more than we have all the details of the second coming. They knew Elijah would come, but they didn't have all of the details. They had bits and pieces, and they were trying to fit everything into it. Now the prophet. What did Moses say about the prophet? Prophet. 
Yeah, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 19, The Lord said to me, What they say is good. You remember Moses goes up on a mountain and God speaks to all the people and they're terrified. They're basically crying out, We need a mediator. The Lord says, What they say to me is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to an account. Now, that could be any prophet. Couldn't it? Or could it? If you were reading that and you didn't know anything else, what would you think? Could that have been speaking of Jeremiah? He was a prophet. If you didn't listen to his words, would you be called into an account? He would speak God's words, right? He listened in on the counsel of God. Could it have been Ezekiel? Could it have been Daniel? Amos? Obadiah? Zephaniah? Zechariah? Could have been a lot of prophets, right? See, this stuff is not so clear until you get beyond it. We need to not be so super spiritual all the time. The Jews knew the word better than most of us. It was not clear. Now we can look and go, wow, knowing that Jesus came to reveal the Father and that nobody was able to comprehend the Father except His one and only, so His one and only was sent as the exact representation of His being, now we can see that with perfect clarity. But if you didn't have a Jewish apostle to teach you that, you might not have got that, huh? See, their expectation of what the Messiah was and who he was was clouded. You know what? Our view of the future, Paul says, is like looking through a dimly lit glass. But when perfection comes, we will know even as we're not. Well, you know, it is always easier to look back at an event. The Jews have been so burned by this that when they teach in their synagogues now, most of them teach prophecy is not for understanding the future. I'm, I'm serious about this. They teach you prophecy is so that when the future occurs, you can look back and see that God foretold it. They teach prophecy in the rearview mirror. We teach it as looking into the crystal ball. Now, both of those are probably correct. It's to warn you about what will happen and so that after it happens, you know that God announced it in advance. He taught that about the ingathering of the Jewish people. He taught that about a lot of things. So when they're looking for this prophet, we know that they were looking for a prophet and some said it could be Jeremiah. Some were confused, thought it could be Elijah. But when they say the prophet, they seem to understand they were talking about a special prophet. I think it's the one Moses spoke of. We know that the apostles knew that it was that because in Acts 3, verse 22, you see these words. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Do you know what that scripture does? It takes the idea of the anointed one and the prophet and it merges them into the same person, Jesus. And they announce that in the second chapter of Acts. The one seed promised to Abraham and the prophet are the same guy. But you know when that was unclear? Before you understood who Jesus was. So what I'm trying to get you to understand is number one, what we taught earlier in the book of John, is John is teaching that Jesus presented Himself so that the Father would be understandable. 
that the book of John was written down so that you might believe Jesus is that anointed one and in Him have life. That in Jesus we see a picture of the Father, but that the people's expectation was clouded. It was confusing. So they weren't sure whether these were three different people, whether they were the same person, and Jesus didn't seem to go out of His way to explain it. And certainly you see John the Baptist didn't. He expected something that else that I've been teaching. He expected what he did to convince them. He didn't go out and explain, no, guys, you have three incorrect uh, perceptions. He didn't do any of those things. He simply did the work of the Father and then trusted that his deeds would speak for him. And the few times he does say it plainly, they're unable to receive it. I say all of that to set up our next Bible study, which will be Wednesday, because John the Baptist looks out into the crowd. God has shown him that a dove would descend upon somebody and remain, not a dove, but the Holy Spirit would, and that that is the one. And he announces him in another way that the Jews had not expected. Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Our next message... So we've moved from Jesus' mission and the mission of the book of John to the expectation of the people to the announcement of Jesus. And it was, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God was not one of the three things they were waiting for. This gives you some insight into the background of the Jewish people. It will give you insight also into our lives. Because just like the Reformation seems to mirror some of the attitudes that you see here, you're going to find that the same problems religious people had in Jesus' day, the church has in our day, and it will give you insight into living and make the book of John more understandable to you. Fair enough? Uh, ask a question. No, ask a question. I would love it. i got maybe five minutes. Verse 27. Verse John 27. So he is the one who comes after me. So if you were just someone out there, you wouldn't speak of one coming after you because you wouldn't know your place or your order in things. So he's telling them there's someone coming after him. So he, that means, in evidence, he has to be a forerunner to something. The next thing he says is the thong through the sandals I'm not worthy unto a top. So whoever comes after is greater. It's not an equal that will be coming. Yeah, if I didn't make this clear, John denied being Elijah and then everything he said proclaimed him to be the correct Elijah. That's why I say John was against the idea of being put in their box of what Elijah was. This is no different than when somebody walks up to you and says, are you a Pentecostal? Well, it depends on what they mean by that. Do you believe in a Pentecostal experience? Yes. Do you refuse to let your wife marry makeup? No. So what do you mean by that? Well, John didn't stop and say, what do you mean by that? He said no, and then described Elijah to the T, what he's supposed to do. Does that make sense? Uh, David, are you charismatic? No. But then you go on to say, but I believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I believe in the moving of the Scripture. Well, what are you then? A Christian. Yeah, I, that, that could be a real conversation, right? I refuse to wear any label but I'll describe exactly what I am according to the Word. So, uh, that's exactly it. John, because from the womb he was filled with the Holy Ghost and set apart from the womb. Now, I want to tell you something. John announces Jesus, and I should have closed, but anyway, somebody will listen to this on the CD and think it's neat. 
John announces Jesus. How does he announce him? Behold, the Lamb of God. John also knew that the one who was coming, his sandals he wasn't worthy to untie. He knew it baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? And you know what else? He doubted that Jesus was him. Think about that. He doubted that Jesus... The guy who came to announce Jesus, once he got to thinking about who Jesus was, because of the messianic expectation, began to wonder, is he Jesus? I mean, is it really Jesus? How did Jesus assuage that doubt? Did he run to John and convince him? He said, go back and tell him what you see. Me do. This is why I teach you constantly. There's a difference between Greek thought and Jewish thought. The way to convince a Jew is by what you do. The way to convince a Greek is by your logical thinking. Jesus didn't run go explain it to him. He said, go back and tell him what you see me do. See, now, the reason I went through all of that to set up the messianic expectation, I know sometimes when you build a foundation it gets laborious, is because you couldn't possibly understand why John would doubt after seeing everything that you've seen if you don't understand what caused him to doubt. What caused him to doubt is every teaching they had heard all of their lives about all of this involved concepts that were based on truth but misapplied. Now, let me ask you something on a personal level. What causes you to not understand end times events? Concepts that are based on truth that you've heard misapplied all of your lives. So what's required is for you to step back, clean the slate and say, I need to try to look at this with a fresh perspective. But I'll tell you, as a human being, that is almost impossible to do. So you spend all of your life weeding out false conceptions that have constrained you. They had to do the same thing. See, this, this takes it out of the category of they're bad, they're unspiritual, or they're mean, or any of those things. They're regular people, just like us. John the Baptist had a six-month ministry. And in those six months, he announced Jesus to the whole nation. He declared that he was greater than him, that a man could only receive that which he had from heaven. He declared that he would be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit and the baptizer in judgment and fire. He declared that he was the Lamb come to take away the sin of the world and then sent people to say, are you really him? Now, you know, there's all kind of messages that have been taught about that, about how even the faithful doubt. But what seems to escape everybody is why would he doubt? Because they were looking for something that was based on Scripture, that was based on truth, but not clearly understood. So why are we confused? Why do we divide up into our sectarian groupings, get mad at each other and say, if you don't believe like I believe, then you're a bad person and you can't fellowship in my church. You know? Don't write, what did the guy say in Baton Rouge on the radio? Don't write me letters. Don't come talk to me about it. Don't do this. We are a thus and so church, a pre-trib rapture, pre-tribulation rapture church, and we can't be convinced and don't want to talk about it. You know, well, how does that happen? It happens the same way. It's always been this way. Nothing's new. Nothing's new at all. Except that now, more is expected of us because we have the mind of Christ. The problem is we also have our mind and they conflict with each other constantly. And everybody says they've heard from God in the charismatic world, right? All of us have heard from God. God speaks to us every moment of the day. The problem is we all heard from God something different. Now, how on earth do you explain that? You know? You can only explain it one way. Somebody didn't hear from God. Nobody wants to admit it's them. We're going to close right here. Y'all stand up and pray and then we'll have all the questions you want because I love this subject but I do want to end the CD at an hour.
So in the name of Jesus, the end, and let's pray.